the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. As we head into hour two, we have a lot to make up uh, for with our guest, George Kaloff. He used to and tries to, and we try to have him in weekly to get us through everything in politics because he's the best uh, political mind I know. He is the managing partner at the Resolute Group and the head of Data Orbital, uh, but our schedules have just uh, – they've just been star-crossed lately. So it's good to have you in, in studio here, George. Always good to be on with you. I said makeup. Um, and I thought maybe I should also make up for slandering you in the previous segment. Uh, in the previous hour, I referred to you as Eeyore, who takes no joy in the kinds of things we sometimes make sport of around here. Um, but if not Eeyore, how about um, Carlos Crinklebein? He was the fish. He was the goldfish in Cat in the Hat. Same kind of general attitude of just finding no humor in most things. I think you find humor in me finding no humor in you, though. I do. Okay. I do. And look, I will accept if I'm the resident ER around here. I'll accept <laughs> it, Seth. You're a good friend. I love to be on. Plus, I'll it's not it. slander if it's true. There you go. <laughs> okay, there George. Go. <laughs> anyway, uh, the Resolute.group is his website. He is a fantastic um, political mind and consultant and all the rest. Running a bunch of races um, in this cycle, uh, some of uh, which I know of. In fact, we ran into each other what Sunday night at an in, uh, at an interesting race? Uh, our, a mutual friend of ours, Karen Werner, yes, who's running for state senate, yes, and she's fantastic. I got to know her early on when she was running for Scottsdale School Board. I got mm-hmm. to know her, I think, through the Women of Action, Arizona Women of Action, yeah. which is yeah. a tremendous organization in town. It's interesting how fast some of these really good organizations came to be. Aristotle said true power is the ability to be and make things be. Arizona Women of Action really did a great job rolling up their sleeves and getting to work. Nothing like the power of serious women, I guess, huh? One hundred percent. And frankly, they were able to harness an energy that we know we all felt, but some people felt and then they went on the merry uh, merry way. They felt it and harnessed it. And stuck with it. One hundred percent. And then people like Karen and others, they were able to support them. And we had the the honor of of, uh, supporting Karen and coming alongside her and Amy, who was running with her school board. Amy Carney. Now Karen Warner is running for state senate in District 4, a district that we're both very familiar with, um, long history, with a race that is very winnable uh, for Republicans and taking it back from the – you know, for the, from the current incumbent. And obviously we've got a lot of time to kind of unpack Arizona focused stuff. I know we, we usually have a, um, a kind of a national vantage point and then related to Arizona, but there's a lot of very interesting and exciting things happening in state uh, for those of us that care about, um, you know, truth and values and just general well-being for our citizens and children and all that. And so I think we've got a lot of good opportunity to, to unpack that. Is this going to be a values type election and do we tend to do well or does it depend on the state of the other side and what they're doing with values? I really think it, it depends on it, it almost I should say to step back it uh, it's almost a little too early to tell okay 
Uh, I think we're going to know a lot more once the presidential race settles. Okay. Obviously, state Senate is a lot of layers between, for example, the president and that. But a lot's going to be dictated by yeah. what happens at the top of the ticket. We know that. There's been a lot more talk even in the Senate race, uh, U.S. Senate race here in Arizona. That's going to dictate a lot. Uh, I do think this election, like the last one, but even more intensely than the last one, you know, look, there's a lot of things that we frankly disagree on. And there is a very clear fight over the direction of our state. And Arizona is going to be in the direction of the nation. And Arizona is going to be at the focal point once again at setting that stage. You and I uh, are obviously very interested in that trajectory. There's a lot of things that we care about and that we work on consistently in that regard. And so I do think that it's going to be more of the um, sort of nitty gritty issues, if I can say it like that, whether it's values or other stuff, but voters feel a level of anxiousness that has to be solved. And it's not going to be solved by talking about platitudes and things that I'm so glad you put it that way, George. I've been talking a bit about this that way, too. There's something going on. In fact, I was talking to it with some people at at the event we were at Sunday night. Just the state we're in, everyone is on um, high alert might not be the right way to put it, but everyone seems to be thrown into a bit of a of a frenzy. We're going through a lot. We've been put through a lot. You think about it, right? Um Perhaps beginning with the election of Donald Trump, for four years we were fed a steady diet of being told by half the country that our president was a fascist or a Nazi or an anti-Semite. I mean, the worst labels you could affix from history were applied to our president by half the country or at least the other half of the party. That puts you in a state of mind, a state of unsettlement. It has to. And then you get COVID and everything that happened there with the disruption of schools and the shutting down of the economy and people wondering about whether they're going to be able to feed their family and kids in the schools and pitting family members and friends against friends throughout all that. That was on top of it. Then we get BLM and George Floyd and the riots. Then we get the 2020 election and then we get January 6th. Then we get a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Then we have what happens with uh, with uh, with Gaza and Israel. I mean, we're, we have been put through tempests that we're resilient, and there's a capacity for self-renewal here, but there's a limit to it. And we're being pushed. I think everyone's just feeling a frenzy. But what you said, I think, is eminently true. I think it has a political solution. And I think people discount the nature of politics by overemphasizing that politics is downstream from culture. I understand the sentiment behind it. But I think politics is, in some cases, the um, the tool with which we can begin to fix some of this. These are political problems, not just cultural problems. Yeah. Look at what President Reagan did in the 80s. Yeah. Look at what uh, leaders now, the revolt that's happening in Western Europe, the revolt that just happened in Argentina. I talked to you about that. Right. Too. Which we need to we need to unpack. Absolutely. Politics has an impact on day to day life, probably more so than many people care to admit or, so. or care to have be reality or be the case, but nonetheless, it's the truth. And look, I we've I feel like I've said this line a million times on this show. Uh, Americans, Arizonans, Republicans, Democrats, Independents, tall, short, whatever sort of a description you want to place on people, we are your yearn- tigger. There you go. Your <laughs> we are yearning for leadership. Yeah, we are yearning for hope that yes, acknowledges the difficulties, but casts a vision for the future. And it's just not happening in the way that I think most people want, which then means that all of these trials and tribulations that we've been put through as a nation 
yes, we are resilient, but absolutely put our people to a test. You can feel it. It's, I don't know how to quite like you describe it, but I feel it from people that you shouldn't even be feeling it from, which means that people that are outside of our bubble are feeling it even more intensely than I think we're realizing. I think so too. I think absolutely that's right. I had a caller in the previous hour you know, bringing up, he goes, if we don't get this right, you know, I'm worried about a civil war. And you, you and I have heard talk of civil war, which we, uh, which, which we of course abhor. But I'll, t- I'll tell you this, and I think I'm right about it. Maybe older people in the audience can correct me or us. I've never heard people talk about civil war until the past two or three years. I've just never heard it even mentioned other than the 1860s. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, we've been, we've had very stark disagreements as a nation uh, before, but I think the usual commentary that I see from anthropologists and sociologists and all those like wonky types, that it's been issue by issue based. I don't know that it's been like everything, wholesale on almost every issue. We're not even agreeing on how to talk about those issues that we have disagreement on. Or pronouns. Right. We're using different language. We're using, we have a completely different lexicon. Uh, we're beginning to congregate similar in the lead up to the Civil yes. War regionally, yes. right? People that yes. live in these certain places yes. think this way. People live in these places think that way. Yes. Um, it's a uh, it's a problem. And again, we see the path. We've seen the path in American history. We see the path from other nations. We need to be very wary yeah. of it yeah. because we're we're on a path that is more than dangerous. Yeah. I agree 100% with that. And I also am willing to affix the blame on one party here, uh, the party that started telling the country that, we had a fascist for a president. I mean, I think that was that was the beginning of something very unhealthy and ill here. Uh, it, it it almost it 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 almost had a dual effect of it did have a dual effect of um, of of diminishing the nature, detoxifying the nature of fascism, but also elevating the nature of political opposition to something it just shouldn't have been. I mean, politics is normal where people. The first rule is there will be people that disagree with you. You look at the Trump presidency, it was a fairly outside of the histrionics that were foisted upon it. It was a fairly normal conservative Republican presidency, a fairly successful conservative Republican presidency. There's nothing fascistic about it. You see it's still unwound. Hosts on MSNBC this morning were talking about if Trump gets reelected there will be executions. What the hell are they talking about? I mean, this is just unhealthy to feed people this from perches of yeah. responsibility. And that's the problem. Yeah. Someone is responsible. We yep. know who. We've yep. got to do something about it. Let's talk about Trump. Uh, let's talk about the Republican primaries. Let's talk about anything people want to talk about with us. They can call in 602-508-0960. And definitively, let's definitely, let's talk about Argentina. George Kaloff and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-508-0960. If you'd like to call in, I'm talking with George Kaloff from the Resolute Group, political consultant and polling and all that kind of expertise. Data Orbital is his other company, and happy to take your calls. Uh, what do you want to do for You want to do Argentina first and then go to the primaries? Because yeah. it yeah, something tells that. me that Set you have a stage. thesis about this. Yeah, yeah. So, and look, I, I think... I don't know uh, all that have followed, but I think there's a very interesting thing that I kind of first first came across my screen a number of months ago that there's a kind of a, a quirky guy running for president of Argentina. Quirky Certainly. looks wise, right? He's got very interesting hair. Someone described it like a beehive. Yeah. And uh, he said some very controversial things, like, for example, doing away with the Argentinian peso and adopting the dollar, canceling the Federal Reserve, a whole bunch of stuff that I think, and I'm barely scratching the surface. 
And not only did he just win, he won by double digits. Mm -hmm. And some, uh, he likes to compare himself as the Argentinian Trump, as an example. You know, we know we had the precursor of of Brexit. And I, I like to talk about this and bring it up because a lot of his movement, it looks like, was propelled by younger Argentinians I mean, Argentina's facing 140% inflation, just crazy, crazy, horrific economic downturn. And again, I think it's an example of when people have just said enough is enough. We see that in, in countries around Europe. We saw what happened in Italy where they went from like a lefty president to a, frankly, essentially what amounts to European standards, a hardcore right wing, same thing in Hungary, so on and so forth. To me, that's indicative of the fact that people are frustrated. Um, people want to push back. And frankly, the most importantly, people are willing to accept ideas that seemingly come off as a bit more off the wall Mm -hmm. to those of us that feel and understand that like, you can't just completely upend things. I think there's some people that are like, yeah, no, I'm willing to upend stuff. And there's a willingness to take a risk from an electoral and voter and human perspective that I don't know that we've seen in a while. I do think there's that is indicative of what we're seeing here in America. And by the way, in America, we're seeing this from both parties. This is not just a Republican thing. The left is doing some of the same stuff, and they're. I think they're going to actually have a considerable amount to tee up our conversation. A considerable amount of primaries nationally between their party around whether it's issues of disagreement on you know Gaza, Israel, that type of stuff, but just wholesale disagreements. We're seeing that kind of pan out on the right. But it's very interesting what happened in Argentina. Now, let's see how much he gets done and all that. But 12 points in a country like Argentina that essentially has had socialist rule for a long time. Um, it, there are a few of these international cu- guides, uh, aren't there, that, that kind of are the dipstick of the mood uh, beyond, and they yet instruct. So, for example, Margaret Thatcher ushered in a whole new wave in England just before, in Great Britain, just before Ronald Reagan did much the same here, right? And I think mm-hmm. you were right to mention the Brexit thing that people made fun of Donald Trump for supporting it and thinking that it was a no no, no chance, but he saw something yeah. there, didn't he? Um, and, 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 and I'm glad you raised the left and the Democrats here, George. I didn't know that I was going to ask you about this, but I'm glad you did because – where is the Democratic Party? Uh, maybe I'm wrong, and maybe there will be a fight here. And maybe the Gaza thing has exposed that some lessons to the party that they need to have a fight. I don't know. I have been thinking that the Democratic Party, for all the talk of Biden being a moderate and not being your Bernie Sanders and Biden is the Democratic Party, not AOC – that it's pretty much one in the same. But boy, you did see something exposed a little differently over the last month and a half, didn't you? It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Um, do you think there will be a fight in the Democratic Party? Or do you You do? You, th- you see something substantial so here. There's five uh, major congressional races where you know members of the quote-unquote squad are being challenged by Democrats, very prominent Democrats, whether against Ilan Omar and other places. And they... The thing that's interesting, though, they have a lot of funding. Now, a lot of this funding is propelled by this current issue, right? Apparently, APAC is pledged. I, I mean, by the way, if this sum is actually ends up coming to fruition, a huge sum for congressional races, $100 million. I'm not shocked. I mean, I've, I've heard other organizations doing $80 million type campaigns. Right, yeah. but specifically on a handful yeah, of races, yeah, yeah. I think we're going to see that continue to pan out. I'm not expecting a national sort of upheaval like we've seen on the Republican side, at least up until this point. I actually think that 
the next go around, there's not a, I shouldn't say an heir apparent. There's not someone like a Joe Biden who I think can coalesce. I think there's going to be a tremendous amount of fracturing. Maybe someone like Michelle Obama comes down the line. I don't know. But I know at the congressional level, at the district attorney level, I know races that you follow very closely. There's a tremendous amount of a people in their primaries. And I actually think it was high, then it really quieted down. I think it's going to end picking back up pretty dramatically. I'm not just saying just on the issue of Israel. I think it's propelled by that. I do think they actually have some pretty marketable differences between them, but they just, again, the, the mindset is just different. They just do a better job of, you know, like, all right, well, we have differences, but it's okay for time being or whatever way that they kind of think they about it. They used to do that. It. Yeah. A couple years ago, I took a special note that uh, when people like uh, Tlaib and Omar had primary challenges that the that the that the officials in DC supported the incumbents. They supported the squad members. I don't know if that will be the case. I now. think there's going to be way more division. Yeah. You see a lot of major Democratic donors yeah. that are sounding off. I mean, it's very interesting what's happening. Again, yeah. let's. I mean, you highlighted it. Yet another issue where there's a fracturing, but the fracture points are not one fracture. It's like you look at the the shell of an egg, right? And you crack it once, twice, but pretty soon there's just cracks everywhere. Yeah. It almost feels like we're getting to that point. We're not just refaulting the same line. We are cracking new lines and some lines are getting deeper. New lines are being exposed and it continues to almost, I feel, progress at a ever-increasing pace. It's a good visual. I, I can work with that. Do you think there's more? Well, how, div- how divided is the Republican Party? I think more divided than the Republicans have been in a long, long time. More than the Democratic Party? I believe at this point, yes. Let's talk about that. What are the dividing lines? Is it one word? One vowel? I mean, somewhat, but no, I think it's what he illuminated in the party. There are issue differences. There's tone and defer difference, uh, tone and tenor differences. It is a lot stemming from him. Uh, but then again, we say that, but at the same point, it looks like, again— we're still weeks away now at this point from Iowa. It looks like he's going to cruise to a nomination. So we'll so see. So do you read it, and maybe this is overly simplistic on my part, but I'm I'm looking at the primary where he's, you know, roughly pulling around 50 percent in the Republican Party. But does that mean there's 50 percent of the party that doesn't want him? Is, is that too easy to say? I, I think it's – I don't want to say it's too easy. I think there's 50 percent that may prefer someone else, but that doesn't mean that in polling and stuff because his favorability amongst Republicans continues to be 75 to 80 percent. Right, right. Consistently, right. which means there's 30 percent of people that says, yeah, I would vote for someone else, but I would – you also know, I'm vote. still OK yeah. with, with Trump. Yeah, there's 20 percent, 25 percent, but that's been – again – uh, Seth, candidly, that's been the same since January of 17. So yeah. that's the thing. Nothing has changed in that regard. Yeah. There's no changes. Now, the, the recent thing uh, is obviously now, you know, Vivek Ramaswamy, there's, you know, uh, there was uh, articles about how he's fading and now Nikki Haley's coming up. But look at this. We've had now three or four iterations yep. of this. Yep. People rising and falling. Yep. yep. There's one constant so far in this nomination Flavor process. of the quarter almost, right? Let me talk with you more about that and divisions within the Republican Party. I've had um, maybe a contrary view with a lot of my fellow conservatives on this, and I'll run it by you when we come back. George Kaloff is our guest, 602-508-0960. Happy to take your calls, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. George Kaloff is my guest, the Resolute Group, Data Orbital. Um, he had made the point, I think in the first segment we were talking about, you know, the ineffable issue of the Civil War, and he was saying, you were saying, George, that, you know, we don't agree on anything, including the English language. Just over the break, we were talking about the White House press secretary, Karen Jean-Pierre, who said, I think, I'm quoting directly today, she said, 
no 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 president has ever has been more energetic who has ever occupied the white house than joe biden we we don't it's, it's we're well beyond war is peace and ignorance is strength <laughs> we're well beyond freedom is we're well beyond orwell here and she just says it seriously as if we're to take this stuff seriously yeah. i mean and that's the thing that scares me about George Orwell in 1984. You know, at the end, Big Brother wins. At the end, people came to like Big Brother. At the end, they bought in to the lie. That's what frightens me. Well, this is the, the problem. What's the natural progression when folks that disagree hear others, right? So like when, when, when people see um, commentary from people they disagree with and they feel like they just say whatever they want, yeah. what does it incentivize those people to do? Yeah. To a certain degree, say whatever they want. Yeah. And then it vice versa and vice versa, right? And I've used this metaphor a lot lately, the metaphor of like an avalanche and when it picks up steam or a snowball as it goes down the hill, you know, whatever way you want to think about what happens. It just gets worse and worse. Very rarely does it then end up getting better. It compounds upon one another. And again, I find it difficult to push back and blame individuals who then have a, even though I may disagree, but have a very angry reaction back to things like this because they feel like, well, if they're able to say whatever they want, why why can't I? Why am I being criticized for my tone? They're just Correct. lying about things. So let me then be angry in the way I talk. And then it just it just gets worse. That's the thing I'm even more afraid of, of one type of people doing it or one side doing it. It incentivizes everybody to start doing the same thing because otherwise it's not a, a level playing field. No, I think that's right. Uh, I don't know if you saw by chance the uh, HBO uh, series on Chernobyl, but it opens with a haunting quote by the scientist who blows the whistle. And he's saying the truth of the cost of lies is not that we'll start believing them. It's that we won't recognize the truth anymore when we see it and that's kind of where we're at yeah now or we're getting to that point um i i I have a theory that i don't know if it's right or wrong i i i'm pretty convinced about it it was kind of the thesis of a book i did a couple years ago called america greatness but this republican upset this division in the republican party you speak of george um i suppose highlighted by the presidency or candidacy of Donald Trump. I wonder if it's at a certain point overblown or an immaturity of certain Republicans. And I know that's going to come off pejoratively. But when you think of what Donald Trump's presidency was, and you think about what his first big issue on domestic policy was, it was cutting taxes. It's very Mm Reagan-esque. You think about his foreign policy, Okay, the Soviet Union didn't exist, but he was pretty hard on Russia and pretty hard on China, the communist. Uh, you think about uh, his Middle East party uh, policies. He was pretty hard on Iran and probably the friendliest to Israel of any president in, in, in history, perhaps since Truman, moving the embassy and all that sort of thing. The immigration issue uh, might, might, might not have been the same kind of issue it has been in the past, but it doesn't seem to me that much of an issue that Republicans should disagree on. It's about sovereignty, after all, and the integrity of this country. Um, what what about him is so aberrant to the Republican Party that thinks he's an anomaly? So my theory may be as uh, controversial as, as, as your theory, right, the answer to your theory. Okay. I think there's a grouping of individuals that had in some manifestation or another been in power for a long time uh, at state levels and at the federal level. 
And I think what Donald Trump presented, even though maybe a lot of the policies that he put forward, the ones definitely that you highlighted, were all things that they would agree with. But there was a general, I think, feeling that this get along, kind of come along to get along type mentality that like, look, if we don't rock the boat enough, we can just sort of keep cruising down the road without making any sudden movements in any direction. Uh, We could pick this up after the break as well. But that he was unwilling to do that. And he did want to veer off the road in sometimes very controversial ways, sometimes less controversial. And so I think that really rubbed them the wrong way. And then the wheels came off the bus. Again, I can expound upon Yeah, it. let's do it when we come back. Yeah, this was a short segment. We'll have a longer one coming up. George Kaloff and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. George Kaloff is my guest. Um, K-H-K-A-L-A-F. K-H-A-L-A-F. I have gotten into the habit of spelling people's last names um, because sometimes people like to Google or whatever yeah. search engine. And uh, I come at this um, with, as they say, unclean hands myself. When your name is Liebson, it's not self-evidently spelled. <laughs> so uh, I try and do that at least uh, once an interview with a guest. George is my guest. George, go ahead and continue with what you were saying about the um, the rifts within the Republican yeah, Party. Yeah. So I think, to, to sort of quickly summarize, I think it started not on policy issues. It's It started on style of governance. Mm-hmm. And now it has gotten into policy issues, I think, to highlight just a couple. I think there's some fairly big differences uh, between the way that that Donald Trump and what sort of the America First movement looks at from a business perspective and the role of big business is comparative to um, the the, the other side, right? And big business being, frankly, from during COVID and otherwise being a grouping that – scares people almost in the way and even more so sometimes than government. So that's a big that's a big deal. The role of cultural issues. Should we be talking about cultural issues or should we not? There's a major, major disagreement. I'm not just talking abortion. I'm talking all cultural issues. And what is the role of that? And look, part of it is, and I don't, I, I, I would say I hate this phrase because I do, but, you know, I, I do want to touch on it briefly. You know, populism mm-hmm. in, in, in terms of the way that I interpret it and what it means to me and the way that it's manifested in this division is, that the people, um, you know, those that would be ascribed as more populist, the people are angry. And so there's a general revolt. And so because of that anger, there's a desire to just want to shake something up, even if it means, and I think this is a hallmark difference between the two sides, even if it means breaking some things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Donald Trump and a lot of the supporters and, you know, frankly, a big percentage of the party are willing to break things. And actually, polling has been fairly self-evident in some of these uh, this theory. And frankly, some of the results are kind of frightening in terms of like with you know what some voters are willing to give up if it means stopping some of the things that scare them. They're willing to break things. And the the other you know the, the disagreement within the parties. There's a bunch of people that say no, I'm not willing to break things, yeah. and it's okay. And I'm just gonna not. I don't want to say status quo, but I'm not willing to break things. That's like a major line of demarcation, I think. So here's what's interesting to me about all of that. Donald Trump seems to me in several respects to be a vessel that a lot of people pour what they think he stands for into him. 100%. So when you go down this list of things, big business, okay, I get it. And we've heard big is bad and there is this new anti-corporate view of things. End of day, he was the guy that gave us big pharma. He was the guy that gave us the COVID vaccine and enriched them and wealthened them so much. Cultural issues. End of day, he wasn't on board with what Ron DeSantis was doing with the Disney fight, right? End of the day, if you were the cultural warrior, 
on the sex business in schools or going after Bud Light or going after the transgender issue, it really wasn't Trump so much as Ron DeSantis. Um, I agree with you, however, on the progressive thing, uh, excuse me, on the populist thing. But even when it comes to Russia and Ukraine, does anyone quite really know where Donald Trump is on this? Different interviews would give you different answers. But he serves as a vessel that people believe he's, he's got this, I don't know if it's a knack or an ability um, or if it's something that the people see in him that maybe he doesn't even realize, where, where he has the ability to stand for what you believe in rather than what he believes in. Which, by the way— If that's fair. Which, by the way, is that not the genius Rona of— McDaniel was his call, not the rest of his movement's call. You know what I mean? The, uh, is that not the genius of amazing marketing yeah. when you— uh, Yes, yes. Right, set a You'll narrative? buy this toothpaste no, no, that'll make your teeth right? white overnight. Yeah, Right? Like, yeah. The, you set a narrative and you invite yeah. people yeah. to see themselves yeah. in that narrative, yeah. and that narrative becomes their own narrative. Yeah. And that's why I still contend it is not just—I mean— I don't know that it is about issues, which is why I think that you know that's the case. It's a feel. It is more about style, yeah. feeling, yeah. and direction of the the party. Now, again, and I've said this in, in multiple different venues, I don't know that let's say in four, eight, whatever amount of years, let's say someone else is the nominee, you know, because at some point, you know, you can only run so many times for president. Fine. So someone else is the nominee. I don't know that the individuals that had a problem with Trump are just going to all of a sudden wake up and be like, yep, I'm back in the party and we're yeah. going to move on hunky-dory. There's been a realignment. These yeah. same individuals had a problem Here with Here maybe in Ron this DeSantis. state as much as any, if yeah. not more yeah. than A lot any. of them had a yeah. problem with Ron DeSantis and you know some of them have a problem with even others that are running for right. you know for the nomination. Again, it's not just all about president. There's Correct. a major manifestation from a state and local level Correct. and frankly policy organizations, the ones that are thriving and the loudest are the ones that frankly are, are pushing the envelope on issues that people maybe in quote-unquote polite company or, or you know, uh, there was a comment I heard at a conference recently where both parties have put out guides to how to how to essentially, you know, push the buttons of your family members that are from the opposing side, uh, right? So if you've got a Republican, you've got family members that are Democrats and vice versa, everyone's putting out a guide to Thanksgiving. And almost like, I've like, seen some of right? Like, yes. But what they're doing is like, I don't know that they're necessarily encouraging people to be sort of hateful or angry towards another, but they're leveraging this idea that there is that level of disagreement, even within parties, uh, even within families, I should say. And so, look, some of this is never going to go back. Mm-hmm. There is a realignment. So now we have to wake up and say, okay, what do we actually want to stand for? And who is going to cast a vision for where then we want to be? And that may mean that people that we like and great people have disagreement on that. And that has to be okay. We have to be willing to be okay with the fact that we're not going to agree with everyone on everything. But we have to, at a minimum, do it at a way where we're not at each other's throats. We're not okay with it right now. Yeah, we're we're not. not. We're not. But I also don't feel this overwhelming need to like... Like we can't always just be agreeing on everything. There's some things that I believe that others don't believe and vice versa. And that has to just be okay. And we still should be able to affiliate with one another. And it isn't. That's the problem. We lost the first rule of politics with the election of Trump, which is that other people will disagree. And sometimes they get a right to govern. And the moment he was elected, the Democrats came out with Russian collusion, Russian agent. Right. They would never accept it. It was it was unacceptable, and, and it's have. not just on him. That's, and that's vice the problem. Versa. And we're, vice versa. We're, we're, but but right. also, but not just even that. We're in Ubers, and yeah. if you're if they even someone gets a whiff of the fact that you believe this or you yep. don't believe this, it's not just media on Trump, Trump on media, Republican on Democrats. Yep. It's with just normal people, yep. people on my Facebook feeds, people on your Facebook feeds. I'm sure that's the thing that makes it worse. It's percolated down to the 
absolute lowest denominator, the average person. The average person is now part of this narrative problem, which is why a lot of people are either doubling down on politics or they are absolutely recoiling from it because they're not sure the trajectory to go with any of this anymore. I never know what dentists think of Halloween any more than I know about what people in your business know what I'm going to feel about what I'm about to say to you, which is there's too much politics. Uh, Politics invaded too many quarters. We shouldn't, outside of what you do and what I do and what some people do, there should not be politics in the NBA and in the NFL. There should not be politics in our classrooms. There should not be politics. It's invaded too many. There are no safe spaces from politics anymore. Might you close the show on that when we come back? Let's do it. Okay. What is your musical taste, George Kaloff? It is fairly, ironically enough, upbeat music. I mean, Lebanese music is very upbeat. I love Latin music. It's very upbeat. Oh, we're on to something. We might find that musical tastes are paradoxical to personality. I like, right? I don't know. I like French rap and French pop. (laughs) You like French rap and French wine. All right, George Put it all together for me. Yes. Let's, okay. Let's do it. So I, I not just wholeheartedly agree with you, even as someone who practices politics on a, on a day-to-day basis. Yes, we were saying there's too much of it. Right. right? Go ahead. The reason why I f- do what I do is I feel very distinctly because of what I believe. I feel called to this, and I felt called to this from a fairly young age, that there was a calling that was put on my life, right, for me, by God, to say, George, I think this is the domain. You know, not I think. He, he doesn't think. He knows. You know, I thought, like, thought hey, this he is said, the domain yes. for me. <laughs> And why is that the case? Because politics does have an influence on on people, and I and I had a desire to uh, to stand up for things that I very strongly believe in. But on the other hand, politics has become less of that now, which has caused me even question: What is my role in politics? Yeah. And you and I have had some of these yeah. conversations. Yeah. And so, for the average person, politics to them should be a means to an end. The right. end is not politics. The end are a set of beliefs in a community that we then build around those beliefs that we can all come together on. And even if we have people in those communities that disagree with one another, because that's been the case for all of history and will be the case for all the history, you know, for all of the future, we have to be willing to do that. And we have to say, like, look, I believe this, you believe that, and um, we can still somewhat uh, live alongside one another. But but that is harder. The encouragement that I would have for listeners is to say, look, uh, political engagement, I don't want to say is a necessary evil. It is a civic duty. And and I think as much as we get um, sort of turned off by it or angry about it, we need to vote. We need to engage. You need to ask questions because, because if you don't, there are others that will, mm-hmm. and they may have way, way less pure intentions. And so if average people don't engage, yes, our political operations are going to be run by insiders, but we need average people to wake up. People have woken up. People from, frankly, all quadrants of the the spectrum, left and right, have woken up. We're seeing the manifestation of that. Uh, Now we need uh, our leaders to wake up. We need our institutions to wake up. And the people are going to force them to do so. And I would encourage us to continue engaging. But look, engaging doesn't mean you bring politics to church and you bring politics to sports and you bring politics to your family Thanksgiving dinner. Sometimes it's okay for us to just commune with one another, hold the beliefs that we do without trying to, you know, be in a you know, like a rhetorical uh, debate everywhere we go. That doesn't need to be the case for us to be engaged politically. There's many ways to manifest that, and there's ways to do it healthy, and there's ways to do it absolutely unhealthily. And I believe that the derivation from the notion that all men are created equal, the principle 
that all men are created equal, and that we derive the just powers of government from the consent of the governed, as our declaration speaks to, means that we also understand sometimes we get a chance to govern and sometimes they do, and we have to accept the outcome of those elections and realize that we will have our turn in two years or four years, and they will have their turn in two years and four years. And because the other guy lost, as Jefferson said, we're still all Republicans and we're still all Federalists. We're not fascists. We have to accept the results that other people don't always agree with us. We've become immature on that point, I believe. George, thanks. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.